Do any of you remember reading back in your college days, maybe your Western Civ 101 class, portions of Aristotle's ethics? Aristotle talks about, raises the question that really is the fundamental question of humanity, uh, is life worth living? That's the question. Uh, and then the answer to that from the Aristotelian tradition, even sort of Plato and Socrates as well, is, well, yes, life is worth living. Okay, well, if life is worth living, then how can it be lived well? Welcome to Reliable Truth with best-selling author Richard E. Simmons III. Today, Richard's guest is Dr. Mark Genelette, Professor of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School. Welcome, Mark. The, to the topic for the day um, is uh, courage, or, or at least so I've been told. I, I thought Richard told me I had a couple hours, um, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll squeeze this into 30 or, 30 or 35 minutes. I'll, I'll talk a little bit, and then maybe we'll have a little Q&A back and forth. Um, if you have a Bible near you, and if you don't, it's fine. Um, and we'll get to this. Uh, Joshua 1, 9 is a verse I want to look at with you all here at the beginning. Uh, we, we use um, language all the time. Uh, it's par part of the challenge, frankly, of, of how we communicate with one another is we, we use terms, and yet we, we are in a moment where um, definitions of terms are, are not necessarily agreed upon. It's, it's not a, when, when you get into various conversations with folks, whether it's in the business world, I'm kind of in the academic world, or frankly, dealing with younger people like my kids, um, it's, not, it's not a bad idea sometimes when you're talking to make sure that everyone's on the same page in terms of understanding what, what, the, what the terminology is that we're using, whether or not we're all using that in the same way. That's not always self-evident, actually. Um, and, and, and the term that we're talking about today is courage, and, and it's, a, it's a topic that has a long and, and noble uh, history within the Western intellectual tradition. Uh, and, in fact, here's a little... No quizzes this morning, so don't worry. But um, fi fi do any of you remember reading back in your college days, maybe your Western Civ 101 class, portions of Aristotle's ethics, Nicomachean ethics? Anybody remember that? Um, well, A Aristotle talks about, raises the question that really is the fundamental question of humanity, uh, is life worth living? That's the question. Uh, and then the answer to that from the Aristotelian tradition, even sort of Plato and Socrates as well, is, well, yes, life is worth living. Okay, well, if life is worth living, then how can it be lived well? Um, how, how can it be lived uh, happily? Is, what, what's, where's happiness in all of this? Uh, as an aside, I read this several years ago. I think uh, 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 the largest registration for a single course... And the history of Yale University occurred like several years ago, and it was a course entitled Happiness, um, the history of the idea. So the, the question about what it means to live a fulfilled human life is an, is an old one. Aristotle's answer to that question is, well, if life is worth living, then a well-lived life is one that's marked by virtue. That was his terminology. Um, and there are several kinds of virtue. 
there's um, intellectual virtue. Well, how do you how do you grow an intellectual virtue? Well, the hard way. There's no no way of no easy road to intellectual virtue. You just have to read and go to school and and be. And here's a character trait that I hope marks all of us, um, especially as we get older. And be curious. I mean, really curious about lots of things. Don't you like being around people who are curious? I mean, like hey, they just like to kind of know about things. So you got to be curious. That's, that's how you get to intellectual virtue. Then there's this thing that he calls practical virtue. Practical virtue is the art of, um, of living well. And the only way in which you get practical virtue, and this is, again, no, no easy street here. I see it around here. You, gotta get either, you either have to lose your hair or get gray hair. Like I, those are your options. Uh, you just got to get older. You got to live some life. Um, some of you who are around here that have the gray hair or the no hair, um, you know what it's like uh, to be around uh, late 20-year-olds or early thir- or someone in their mid-30s. And you're probably careful how you say this, but you know that you carry with you a lot of live life that if this person were smart, they'd ask you some questions about that. Um, for some reason, today we value... Um, the energy of youth over against the wisdom of old age. That is, that is not an ancient instinct. The ancient instinct is to recognize and to value uh, those who've lived some life because they bring practical virtue and practical wisdom. For those of you who are in our study, gosh, it's a long time ago now, um, September of last year, I think, we did Ecclesiastes together. Ecclesiastes is a book that comes with um, sore bones, stiff joints, and a receding hairline, right? I mean, that, this is the book of, of uh, Solomon in his old age giving some counsel. So you just have to live life. There's a, there's a third virtue, though, that Aristotle talks about, and that's moral virtue. And, and how do you establish moral virtue? You establish moral virtue by habituating yourself in virtuous practices, And virtuous practices are identified by Aristotle as learning to live in the mean, in the middle, between two extremes. Right? So you have extremes in one way or the other. And courage is one of those classic virtues that Aristotle talks about. How do you establish the virtue of courage? It's not, and this is really important, it's not, in the Greco-Roman tradition, the absence of fear. That, that's not um, courage. In fact, Aristotle, if my memory serves me correctly, describes those who operate absent of fear as buffoons. I mean, to operate op- absent of fear is not to be, is, is uh, not to allow your brain to be functioning in a right way. There are th- times that we should legitimately be fearful. Courage is knowing when to withstand or knowing when to advance in the face of fear. That's how Aristotle defines it. Um, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, I think we, we know something about um, living between the extremes of cowardice or a kind of brazen fearlessness. Uh, courage lives in the middle of that. A lot, lot, lot to be gained from that. What, what about the Bible? What does the Bible um, have to say about courage and its definition? Well, that's, that's a fast, it's a question I've been thinking about now for a couple of weeks, and it's a, it's a fascinating one, and it is one that the Bible actually does take up. It, it, it raises the question about 
What does courage look like for the man of faith um, in this world? I wanted you to read Joshua 1.9 with me. This is a, a classic a text on this. Joshua 1.9. Um, and, and let me... Uh, let, let me contextualize this a little bit. What's, what's happening in Joshua? Well, Joshua is a book that's found right at the seam of the canon. Uh, so you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the five books of Moses. And then you move from the Torah to Joshua, which is the beginning of the prophets. Um, so here's the way in which Moses and Joshua are described. Moses is a servant of the Lord. Moses ministered before the Lord face to face. Joshua is described as a servant of Moses, who's carrying on the legacy of Moses. So what you see is the priority of Genesis to Deuteronomy, and then working that out with Joshua in a new moment when our leader is gone. So there's a vacuum of leadership that happens um, in Joshua uh, with Moses off the scene now. And now Joshua is called to step into that moment as a leader. But as a leader, his role is basically to broker the Mosaic legacy for those people now that are entering into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And for those of you who know your Old Testament history, I know that's a lot of you in here because you're, you're Bible people. Um, for those of you who know this, Joshua, the book of Joshua, is the golden era of the Old Testament. It's as good as it gets. Um, all cylinders are firing. Uh, there's still some sin that they deal with here or there, but for the most part in Joshua, the people of God in that first generation are ordering their lives and their affections in accord with God's Word. And then you flip from Joshua and you go into Judges and all hell breaks loose, right? I mean, then, they, then you get into the rest of their story, and it's, and it's a kind of ugly one. So this is Joshua. At the beginning here, Moses is dead. They've just started to make their movement toward the promised land after all those years of wandering. And listen to what the Lord says to Joshua uh, in verse 8. Well, let's start in verse 7. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law that my servant Moses has given you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Verse 8, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. Now, again, you Bible people here will listen to that and go, oh my goodness, that sounds really familiar. Meditate on God's law day and night? That sounds just like Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is, How blessed is the man that does not walk, stand, walk, stand, sit with the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The, the, the Hebrew canon of the Old Testament is divided into three parts. You have uh, the law, then you have the prophets, and then you have the writings. What's fascinating is, Joshua is at, at the seam between the law and the prophets, and the Psalms are at the seam between the prophets and the writings. So Joshua and the Psalms fit right at the seams, and both of them begin with basically the same idea. Meditate on God's Word day and night, and do not be fearful. Take courage. So this is the idea here. So here's the, here's the idea. You have um, the law... Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. 
which is the first book of the prophets. What's Joshua 1, 7 through 9? Love God's law day and night. Right there at the scene. And then you have the writings, the third part of the canon, which begins with the Psalms. And Psalm 1 basically echoes the same sentiment as Joshua. Now, I'm probably not doing a really good job of communicating this, but what I think is so instructive about this is that these signal locations in the Old Testament, the same thing is being said right there. And it's about courage, and it's about courage as it's related to the authority of God's Word. Look at what he says here. Keep the book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, verse 8, so that you may be careful to do everything that's written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful, right? Like a tree planted by the rivers of water whose fruit is always in season. Verse 9, have I not commanded you? So this is a command from the Lord. Be strong, be courageous, do not be afraid. So you see that connection there? Strong, courageous, don't be afraid. Why would you not be afraid? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Um, again, this is, this is where I think the Bible uh, begins to pulse a little bit for us. Um, be strong, be courageous, order yourself according to my teachings, my word, and don't be afraid because I'm going to be with you wherever you go. Um, by the way, that sounds a lot like Jesus at the end of Matthew. Um, go and make disciples, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Number two, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And how does he end this? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. There's Jesus in the Great Commission, basically sounding a lot like Joshua 1, 7 through 9 and Psalm 1 right before he ascends to the, to the Father. So we're, we're sitting here, this question of courage is sitting on some major seams, significant seams within the Bible, including the New Testament. So the call to courage, the call to our reliance on God's Word, a recognition that He's with us always. So can I give you a non-Aristotelian biblical definition of courage? Uh, this, this will help the Tzatzikis digest a little for you. Uh, here's, here's, a, here's a biblical, I think, definition. And there's several ways of saying this, but this is just gentle this, this afternoon. Here, here's the definition. Biblical courage is a trust and a reliance on Jesus as Savior and Lord. I'm going to say that one time. It's a trust, it's a reliance, it's a confidence that Jesus is our Savior and He is our Lord. And that that trust and reliance and that truth, and this is where we get to the heart of the matter, shapes and orders every facet of my being. There's not one area of my existence that I can escape from the standpoint of what we're seeing up here, the confession and the truth that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. He saved me from my sins. I know that I rely on Him for my salvation, Him and Him alone, and also He is my Lord. I want to order my desires, my will, and my affections toward what He has to say, knowing that it's better. 
And I cannot tell you um, how significant I think our moment in the West right now is with regard to this biblical definition of courage. A recognition that Jesus is Lord and He is Savior and that that allegiance is my primary allegiance by which everything else is judged. Everything else is, is secondary. Now, um, can, can we keep going? You with me? All right, let me give you uh, three further ideas here. Mark, can I ask something very quickly? Of course, please. How, how as followers of Jesus, how do we look at that and know that God was not speaking just to Joshua in that moment, but He's speaking to millions of us now. And yeah, I love that question. That question gets me out of bed every morning to go pay the bills teaching at Beeson. That's a great question. Um, and, the, and the answer is, I think, 2 Timothy 3.16, um, 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, all Scripture, and by that point in time, Paul's talking about the scriptures of Israel, we can apply that to all the Bible, old and new, but he's speaking about the scriptures of Israel. All scripture is God-breathed, inspired, and it's profitable for teaching, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Um, Romans chapter 15, verse 1, great turn of phrase, where Paul says, that which was written in former times is actually written for our instruction. Um, so this is, this is the heartbeat, really, of the churches wrestling with the Old Testament. We're not reading someone else's mail. And I'm, I'm stealing that phrase. Some people use that terminology. This is not our mail. Um, the church and Jesus, Luke 24, has told us, no, 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 that's not someone else's mail. That's our mail. And the God revealed in the Old Testament is Jehovah, whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that, I mean, I love that, that question, but I can chase that for an hour. Because that, that is a, it's a very important question. Um, one of the earliest church heretics to arise in the history of the church was a fellow named Marcion. And, and Mars, at the heart of Marcion's uh, heresy was a denial of the role of the Old Testament in the Christian life. Um, and, and Irenaeus and Tertullian and tons of other early church fathers said no to that. So was Joshua speaking to them in that particular moment? Yes. But he's also, by the Holy Spirit, these words are continuing to speak throughout the generations of, of the church. Yeah. That's not always easy, by the way, um, you know, in how we receive and apply these things. It's, there's some complicated interpretive issues here. No one rounded the corner of their beards this morning. You probably had a shrimp boil last night. Um, you know, there, there are things that, that the Old Testament says that don't apply to us because we're in a different moment. So I don't want to overly simplify it. But in terms of a recognition of the lordship of God, the centrality of, the, of his instruction, those are sort of fundamental principles that the Old and the New Testament agree on. Um, two Testaments, one God, one economy of salvation. I think that's re really important. Great, great question. Oh, all right, uh, back, back here. Three, three things, three things to, to kind of parse out this biblical definition of courage. Number one, number one. Um, biblical courage recognizes our sole allegiance is to the Lord and the Lord alone. Th this is huge. Uh, here's another, this is right on top of your question. Here's another uh, verse from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4. This, this is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, very, very much. 
Um, the first commandment out of Exodus 20, which is not one out of ten, it's the commandment upon which all the others are based, is what? No other gods besides me. The whole relationship between God and His people in the Old and the New Testament is built around the exclusive loyalty that we have to God and to God alone. I mean, think about this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. It's a strange thing to hear a command toward love. Um, I'm a, lot of, a lot of married men here in the room. I've been married 23 years. I almost have my Ph.D. in marriage. Still working on it. Um, joking, I'm not even close. Like I feel like I'm in kindergarten. Uh, but uh, I, I do know my wife well enough to know that if I tell her to love me and command her to do it, and now demonstrate that right now in some way, that may, maybe this is different in your marriage. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't fly well in mine. I, I've been learned in that regard. Um, so it's a strange thing to hear the Lord commanding us to love Him. I, I think a better way of, of understanding that term is not um, the affection of love, even though I think that's a part of the Bible for sure, Song, Song of Solomon and other places. Rather, it's a command toward exclusive loyalty to Him and Him alone. No one else. The Lord is the Lord. Um, we're not having to work hard in our minds in terms of where our ultimate allegiances lie. Um, this is why uh, the, the covenant of marriage is such an important illustration in all of the Bible for God's relationship with His people. All, all of you who are married made these vows. Um, I give myself faithfully to you, no others, in sickness uh, and in health, until death do us part. Only death can render and break this vow that we're making to one another. What's at the heart of the covenant of marriage? Exclusive loyalty to the other. So here we have, again, in this biblical definition of courage, a recognition of exclusive loyalty to the Lord and the Lord alone. I'm going to come back to that. Number two, and I realize our time is fleeting. Number two, trust um, in God's providence. So here's three ways I'm kind of working out for you this biblical definition of courage. A recognition that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, and a confidence that comes from knowing that that's true. Number one, that uh, works itself out in allegiance and loyalty to the Lord. Number two, a trust in God's providence. A trust in the reality that God is at work in our lives and ordering us toward His own purposes and His own end in our lives. Um, that's what providence is. By the way, Providence is not a get-out-of-jail-free card from the troubles of human life. Um, there are religions out there that offer that. I mean, come on, any of you read about Buddhism? Buddhism sounds great. That's fantastic, right? I mean, you kind of travel up this particular, you know, this ladder to a point where all of the problems of human existence get left behind in a state of nirvana. Sign me up. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get on board with that. Um, that's not Christianity, though. Christianity, whether we like it or not, leaves us in the fallenness of the human world and the brokenness of human relationships and, and calls us to trust God and recognize Him as Lord in that and to trust that He's working through the mess of human existence toward His own end. Great stories in the Bible on this. Wonderful stories. Um, like uh, the book of Ruth and the book of Esther. So here are two books in the Old Testament that really are books that are wrestling with the providence of God 
in very difficult circumstances. What happens in Esther? Well, you know, there's about to be a genocide for all the whole Jewish people. Esther somehow has become the wife of King Ahasuerus, the, 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 the great king of Persia. She risks her life to save her people. And she says, perhaps I became queen for just a moment like this. That's a, that's a deep trust in the providence of God in her life that led her to a moment of great potential self-arm um, for the sake of trusting in God's work in her life. What about Ruth and, Bo- and, uh, and Boaz in the book of Ruth? I mean, again, I, I, our time is going, but Ruth, if you're looking for good beach reading this summer, I mean, Ruth is about as good a book as there is. It is fantastic. Um, Naomi goes down to Moab. Lots of questions about this. The Moabites are never presented positively in the Bible. What are they doing down there? But there they go, down to Moab with her husband, Elimelech, and her two children. And before you know it, she's a husbandless and sonless, no children, in the ancient world. That is almost a death sentence for a woman. She is now among the most vulnerable people in the ancient world. She has no husband and she has no sons to protect her. So what does she do? She goes back, uh, heads back to Bethlehem, her hometown, and she tells her daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, stay here. And long story short, you know the story, Orpah stays. Do not judge Orpah. She makes the smart decision. That was wise. I mean, you can read a few books on this. Parents would be happy. That was a wise decision that Orpah made to go back home. But what does Ruth say? Ruth says in Ruth 1, and this is so beautiful, wherever you go, Naomi, that's where I'm going. Your people, they're now my people. And here's the confession of faith. Your God, Naomi, my God. Whatever comes, and she is putting herself in that vulnerable spot, whatever happens, let it be. I will trust in it. But your God is going to be my God, and I will follow you and your God to the end. It's a remarkable trust in the providence of God. And what happens in the story? Well, before you know it, and you have to love it. You read, read it closely. Ruth 2 and Ruth 3, it says, And she happened upon, she happened upon, all these little, she happened to go to the field of Boaz, and she happened to do this. And we know that God's moving. She doesn't see it. But you as a reader of the story know that God is moving. And before you know it, you're in Ruth 3. And, and uh, I tease my students at Beeson that Ruth 3, if they did a trailer of it as a movie, uh, comes across as a steamy HBO miniseries. You know, like here's Ruth getting gussied up and, you know, putting on her best dress and her perfume. And she's going into sneaking in the middle of the night onto the th- bad stuff happened on the threshing floor in the ancient world, by the way. Going to the threshing floor, sitting down at his, laying down at his feet. And it's like this thing is all set up to be a hot, steamy HBO movie that then ends up turning into just a Hallmark. And that's a, it, it goes nowhere, right? It's like, well, that was it. Um, and, and that's, that's, that's the whole, but I think that's the point. The point is both. Boaz and, and Ruth are virtuous. They're described that way, trusting in God's providence. And before you know it, you blink and you're at the end of the book and Naomi, who's childless with no son, is holding the child of Boaz and Ruth in her arms. Naomi now has an offspring as well. And we blink uh, two generations and there's King David. It's just a remarkable story. A trust in God's providence. It's not an escapism from reality. We don't get that. But it is a call to engage and enter into our lives 
faithfully by God's grace, knowing that he is ordering, and this is hard, this is meat and, this is meat and potatoes Christianity, that he's ordering both our joys and our sorrows uh, toward, toward his own end. That's hard to hear that. I don't even like to say it. But he's ordering our joys and our sorrows toward his own end. And then lastly, um, last bit of courage here. I wanted you to see Psalm 103, verse 20. I just thought this is fantastic. Psalm 103, verse 20 says, Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones. Another way of translating this is, you courageous ones. Well, how are they courageous? Because they obey his word. So the, the three things here. Number one, a recognizing an allegiance to the Lord and the Lord alone. Number two, a trusting in God's providence in our lives. And then number three, the courage to recognize that God's word is truer and better than anything else that's on offer in the world around us. That's not easy. That's easy to roll off my lips. It's much harder, actually, to put that into practice. Um, St. Augustine, uh, Thomas Cranmer in the Anglican tradition, um, both of them in their own, Karl Barth, 20th century theologian, all three of them in their own way said that the Bible, even in its weirdest parts, is better and truer than the best things that we can say on our own. That's, that, that takes some wrestling with. I wrestle with that. But a confession and a recognition that, and a courage of recognizing that God's Word is truer and God's Word uh, is better. So can I make two little comments? Are we okay on time? Okay. Oh, yeah, I keep remembering that. Um, so then, then I'll make three comments. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, three concluding comments here. Number one, um, and, and take courage from this, brothers, and encouragement. Um, we're horribly inconsistent. In fact, our inconsistency in our courage is something that kind of marks the fallenness of our, hu of our humanity. Uh, any of you um, forced to read in college the great French essayist Montaigne? And he's really kind of the father of the, of the whole genre of the, of the essay. Um, since we're all men in here, I can see I don't know if you edit this other video, but uh, I, I like to keep Montaigne near the toilet. Cause great little, little pieces and not very long. It's good toilet reading. Um, <laughs> he, he wrote this, this incredible piece, little essay called The Inconstancy of Man. And raises the question, like anyone who's been to battle knows the story about the soldier who one day shows, you saw this in, in, um, in uh, uh, um, uh, Band of Brothers, shows enormous courage, like death-defying courage. And two weeks later is cowering in fear in his tent and can't, and can't move because of the paralysis. Montanius says that's in many ways a kind of representation of ourselves because he goes on to say this, we don't really even know ourselves all that well. It's hard for you and me to know ourselves really well. I, I was reading Walker Percy's book, um, the La uh, Lost in the Cosmos, which is the last self-help guide that he wrote. It's a great, great reading. Um, and, and Walker Percy, the beginning of, of this co comedic book on self-help, says, have you ever taken into account that you never really see yourself in in the fullness of who you are, in ways that others do. 
I mean, like, I'm up here. I, I can't, and I'm kind of glad, but I can't take my whole self in in ways that you all can see me right now. Um, we rarely get glimpses of our whole selves. Montagna would say, of course, we, we don't know ourselves all the well. My, my point with all this is we're inconsistent. Um, and, and, and take gospel hope from this. In our inconsistency, um, we lean hard on the courage that was shown for us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel also shapes our understanding of courage as well. He lived for us. He died for us. He receives us as repentant sinners, and this really calls us um, to a life of repentance. We're always turning toward Him. If you think you can settle the issue of courage, I'm going to recognize Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I'm setting it down in stone today, and I will hold to it till the day that I die. Well, you've been with yourself too long to know that you're not going to do that. You've carried your same body around for as many years as you're living, and I'm carrying mine around too. We're inconsistent. We need a Savior. So, the call to courage is also a call to a life of repentance. Number two. Um, and, and this is worth, you know, this is debatable. It's been contentious online, but I'm just, I'm just going to lay it out before you. Aaron Wren uh, wrote, a, and he's become someone, an interesting sort of public intellectual, Christian public intellectual, wrote a piece for First Things maybe three, four years ago now, describing the world in which we live now as, in his terms, the negative world. And what he means by that is the conjunction of, say, evangelical faith. What I mean by that is we recognize Jesus is Lord, the Bible is authoritative, and the gospel is true. That Those things animate our existence. That he said up until 1994, it was a positive thing in public culture in America to be both a Christian and hold positions of cultural capital. He said 1994 to 2014, it becomes kind of neutral land. In other words, one person's a vegan, one person's a Buddhist, one's a Christian. I mean, it doesn't really hurt you one way or the other. Um, it's just kind of neutral. But he did say 2014 to the current day um, is negative space. In other words, the con Christian conviction about Jesus as Lord in all spheres of life and holding positions of cultural influence and capital, Ren says, are going to become increasingly difficult. I think he's right. I think he's right. And I think this is why, going back to this biblical definition of courage, the confidence of knowing that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, and that that allegiance shapes everything, I do think, and it's easy for me to talk to, I get to go hide out in my nice office at Beeson and look at my books and, you know, read websites and things like that. Some of you are living in, in the public square in ways that I don't. So it's easy for me to talk this way. I get it. But I do think Christian men are going to be really challenged and are being challenged. And I think about the next generation, too, to think through and sort out where their ultimate allegiances ultimately rest. Is the confession that Jesus is Lord going to shape every sphere of my existence or, or not? Um, and then uh, lastly, I wanted to illustrate this. And it's going to sound, I, I don't want to get into the culture war stuff, although I don't mind doing that a little bit. I think we need to probably more than we want to now. Um, but are you, uh, I saw an incredible uh, illustration of this kind of courage from a believer a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now. Did you all follow this story with the L.A. Dodgers um, and, the, and their honoring of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence? Um, pretty rough. I mean, that was, that was, that was you know, I don't know who makes these decisions, but they don't seem smart to me. Um, 
But anyway, this group comes in. They're, they're, not, they're, they're an LGBTQ group, but they dress up as nuns. You can look online. They do some really they, lewd, lewd uh, um, offensive things about the faith. Uh, they do a hunk Jesus contest every year around Easter. Uh, they've got pictures of people treating crosses like stripper poles. I mean, it's, it's gross, and it's decadent. And the Dodgers decided to honor them on, on uh, Pride Night. It's like, oh, gosh, all right. So this is, you know, and I feel for these ball players. I mean, these major league ball players are ball players. They, and, and, you know, they're, they're not theologians, and they're not kind of reading deeply in this stuff. But, but some of them are recognizing that I've, I've got to think through how I'm going to respond to this. And some have responded in different ways. One pitcher from the Dodgers, I, I wanted to read to you the letter that he wrote publicly. Um, and he's a middle reliever named Blake Trinan. He's got, I think, Joshua 1-9 on his baseball glove. Right? Isn't that fascinating? Um, uh, we, we're Rays fans. We hate his guts on the mound because the man is, he, he's amazing. So he's a very good pitcher. I, I wanted to read you the letter that Blake Trinan wrote because I thought, what? And I've read this to my kids. What a model. It's not perfect, but a model of the kind of courage we're talking about this morning. This is what he said. Uh, I'm disappointed to see the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence being honored as heroes at Dodger Stadium. Many of their performances are blasphemous, and their work only displays hate and mockery of Catholics and the Christian faith. Now, this is the part I wanted you to hear. I understand that playing baseball is a privilege. It's not a right. My convictions in Jesus Christ will always come first. That's what we're talking about today. Since I've been with the Dodgers, they have been at the forefront of supporting a wide variety of groups. However, inviting the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence to perform disenfranchises a large community and promotes hate of Christians and people of faith. This single event alienates the fans and supporters of the Dodgers, Major League Baseball, and professional sports. And then he goes on, I think this is wise counsel. People like baseball for its entertainment value and competition. The fans do not want propaganda or politics forced on them at the ballpark. The debacle with Bud Light and Target should be a warning to companies and professional sports to stay true to their brand and leave the propaganda and the politics off the field. Now, you all can debate all that you want to, but this, this last part here, it's so good. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I believe the word of God is true. And in Galatians 6, 7, it says, Do not be, be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Uh, this group openly mocks Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of my faith. And I want to make it clear that I do not agree with nor support the decision of the Dodgers to honor the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And listen to how he ends this. Joshua 24, 15. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's something, I mean, again, simple Christian, not, not seminary trained, but loves his Lord, recognizes the gospel of true, was true, and came to a point of real conflict. What am I going to do? This is a, and my heart goes out. Other, other Dodgers made, made decisions. I won't say, I'm going to leave it to say, Made decisions. I'm like, I kind of wish you wouldn't have done that. Um, but, but, but I feel for him. It's hard. But here's a young man willing to really kind of um, put his career on the line for the sake of his allegiances to the Lord. I pray that the Lord will give us that kind of courage to recognize 
uh, him as our Lord and our Savior. Lord, bless these men. Easy uh, to pontificate. Easy to talk in a room like this about these things. Lord, there are people around the world that are dying for their faith every day. Uh, women in Nigeria that have been kidnapped and murdered by Boko Haram because they believe in you, Jesus. Christians in South Sudan and in hidden churches in China and in the mountains of Peru. All over our world, people are dying for their faith because they believe, Lord, with the courage that you've given them that what you say is true and what you've revealed in your son is better. Lord, would you give us just a little bit of that in our world and in this city? The courage to believe that what you say is true and that what you say is better and that we would organize our affections and our allegiances and our lives to you and to you alone. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.